Hi, I'm Graham McLennan, and the times continue to be strange ones. Today I'm sharing two interviews featuring people who are doing things a little differently, and just how that's working in these very unusual times. Let's get started. Talking to chefs, and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. You're listening to the Chef Demoni Podcast. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Welcome back to the Chef Demoni Podcast, and thank you for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time to be here for the show. And if you're new, welcome to Chef Demoni. This is a podcast that's all about stories. It's about real-life stories from people who love food and restaurants and hospitality. And today, I've got three great guests, all with deep connections to the food and hospitality worlds. Coming up very soon will be my talk with Sonia Strobel, and she is one of the people behind Skipper Auto, which is a community-supported fishery here in British Columbia. Sonia has some great thoughts on local food production, on how the food production system really works, and what it takes to pay living wages to fishing families. But before my talk with Sonia, up first are Chris Cairns and Antonio Keon. Chris is a colleague of mine from the world of law, but he's also got a long history in the hospitality world. Now, before Chris became a lawyer, you'll hear me jokingly giving him my condolences for that career change. He was a bartender in the Cayman Islands, and that sounds like a whole lot of fun to me. But all good things must come to an end, I suppose. And it was Chris who introduced me to Antonio Keon. Those two had worked together in a restaurant in Toronto, and Antonio eventually came to Vancouver to look at the acting scene here. In fact, you'll hear that both Chris and Antonio have quite a lot of experience as actors in addition to their restaurant industry experience. Antonio remains really involved in the hospitality sector now as a partner in Collective Hospitality, and that's a group that operates some really cool ventures here in Vancouver. One of them, Say Mercy, is a very new restaurant in East Van, and you're going to hear today about a really interesting initiative called Staff Meal that Say Mercy is running to help out in the midst of this COVID-19 crisis. It's a new and really thoughtful twist on the age-old restaurant tradition of feeding staff before getting ready for opening and ultimately serving guests. All right, that's enough for me for this introduction. Let's get to the first interview. Here's my talk with Chris Cairns and Antonio Keon. Antonio and Chris, thank you very much for joining me so quickly and remotely and uh, dropping by to be on Cheftimony. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Yeah, happy to be here. In my house. Great. <laughs> yes, yes, literally in three houses. <laughs> Antonio, maybe let's start with you. Can you give us uh, a bit of your background in hospitality and then tell us how you uh, first crossed paths with uh, this Chris character? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my background in hospitality as with everything in my life, kind of happens backwards. I just always needed a job and always found my, my, myself in places of food service. My first restaurant job uh, was at the distillery district when there was no distillery, and that's in Toronto, where I saw a guy unloading chairs from the back of a truck. And I showed up with my resume because my mom said, go get a job at this restaurant opening. And uh, there was no restaurant to be found. And he was the only person there. And I, I hopped into the truck and I said, can I give you a hand? And he said, get out of my truck. And, and I said, I'm here for the restaurant job. And he just thought I was like the dumbest kid possible. And, and he had a lot to do. He had like, it was a pack. There were a lot of chairs. Yeah. 
it was like a 400 seat patio. And so I basically made a, a weird deal with him where I was like, you know, if I keep showing up every day, when you have a restaurant, will you hire me? Um, I guess that, that little anecdote is everything you need to know about me and hospitality. <laughs> I've kind of done that in every job possible. Uh, and, and always found myself in a position where I could, where I could say, how can I help? And then can I have a job? And Chris and I crossed paths at, uh, this massive place opening up in Toronto called La Société, which was uh, a French bistro that was supposed to be everything to everybody all the time, the rich, <laughs> the poor, and everything in between. Uh, and it was run by a, a fantastic businessman who was maybe not quite a restaurateur uh, <laughs> in the classic sense, but he had a lot of money so he could have a restaurant. And Chris and I met in a, a very intense service training in a very hot room of what I think was like a school of some sort. I remember having a conversation outside that, that was like, well, I'm doing this, but you know, I'm also studying to become a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was back there. Yeah. <laughs> and here we are. And Chris, my condolences that you're um, a lawyer these days, but uh, <laughs> taking, yeah. I'm taking grand thing. Yeah, yeah. I feel your pain. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure you but, do. <laughs> yeah. but, but I know that you've got a lengthy history as well in the hospitality business. Give us a bit of the summary of it, including touching on your, what was it? Seven, seven, eight years in Grand Cayman. Uh, six years in Grand Cayman. Six years, okay. Yeah, that was right before I came to Toronto and met Antonio, actually. Um, the uh, Yeah, no, I was six years in Grand Cayman, mostly because... So, I was, um, like Antonio is now, I was an actor, um, and I needed to pay rent. So, I, uh, I started working in restaurants pretty quickly, um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and kind of worked my way from busboy all the way up to, or dishwasher all the way up to busboy to server, bartender, etc. Um, and that was in Victoria and then Vancouver. And then uh, the acting thing didn't work out as well as I, I would have liked it to. So um, I took off to go traveling for a number of years. And uh, on one of those jaunts, I came back to Vancouver and my old boss, I asked my old boss for my job back. And he said, well, I don't have anything because you've just disappeared <laughs> on me too many times. <laughs> but I know people in Cayman Islands. So do you want to go there? And I was like, ah, I'm still packed. So I'll go. <laughs> <laughs> Why wouldn't I? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And then what, and what was the incentive to, to go to law school and did that cross timelines with your time in Cayman? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I, so when I was in Cayman Islands, I was, I was working in a bar, um, a beach bar down there. So like cocktail, <laughs> the movie. And I just got, I was pushing up on mid forties or 40 at that time, I think. And I thought, am I, can I do this? much longer the rest <laughs> so, of my life <laughs> so i was like so i uh, i looked around and i and i saw some opportunities uh, one being a law school that was in the cayman islands at the time and i thought well i have my bachelor of fine arts what else can i do with this so i applied to law school and got in <laughs> so, so that's how i started law <laughs> that is fantastic <laughs> I love it. Now, Antonio, you've transitioned into the, I, I don't know what to call it, the ownership management side on the hospitality okay. business lately. Yeah. So tell us about uh, Collective Hospitality and, and what you and your partners are up to in Vancouver. 
Yeah, so Collective Hospitality was originally started as the Jameson Collective, and it, it started before I came to Vancouver, in fact. I was still living in Toronto, and I was trying to figure out <clears throat> where I was supposed to be and what was best for myself and my family. Andrew and his wife, Katie, who Chris and I met at uh, La Societe, as well as Chef Sean Reeve, uh, who worked there briefly, although I didn't cross paths with him really. They were all moving out here and it was Andrew's idea to buy the restaurant. He knew, he, he had made a decision for himself that he was like, this is a thing that I think I can do and I'm in. I was independently moving here because I had some, I work as an actor and I had some friends that just moved out here and they said, the grass isn't greener, but it's different grass. Come check it out. So my, my wife like stayed that. in Toronto and I, I packed up all my stuff and we had, we'd been together forever, but we just got married. And I was like, Hey, that was a lot of fun. I'm leaving. <laughs> and so I went to Vancouver by myself, started working. And as soon as I landed here, Andrew kind of called me up and he said, I just bought a restaurant and I'm pregnant with twins. And uh, do you want to get the band back together? I said, great. So I started off uh, as a server with, I guess, a voice that was listened to because we had all done this many times. Uh, and certainly like problem solving and building systems is a thing I love. And so as that kind of progressed over the years and we started seeing how the restaurant was working and what it needed, I, I just kind of I was just there, not not to say that I hung around long enough that they gave me a, a, a title, but certainly like we were going to be, it, was, it became evident that we were doing this together, that we were all working towards the same common goal. Uh, and we knew that we could get further together. So that was the McKenzie room. And I kind of uh, snuck my way into management and ownership uh, as part of the Jameson Collective, which became Collective Hospitality. And then just this year in, uh, in January, we opened St. Mercy and St. Mercy was the second place. Okay, from from the collective group. You got it. Okay. Now, before we get to Say Mercy and, and some really cool stuff that's going on there, although this is, as I was saying to Antonio just before Chris was able to join us, uh, giving him a bit of background on the podcast and saying it's a, a food podcast. Occasionally, we have lawyers on like Chris, who's got experience and depth in the hospitality industry. But I can't leave this non-food topic without asking you both a little bit more. What's with the acting? And, <laughs> and because I've spoken to Chris a little bit about it, I had a very unsuccessful, I can't even call it acting career, I can call it an auditioning career, <laughs> uh, when, when, I, when I took some time away from the office and, uh, and I was working in the culinary industry because I had a more flexible schedule, right. I went to a ton of uh, commercial auditions. And uh, anyway, I found it super fun, super interesting. Yeah. But uh, just auditioning, as you guys probably know, doesn't pay the rent. So that's nope. part of the reason I'm... <laughs> I'm back to being a lawyer, but uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so Chris, give us um, just give us a brief rundown on on your experience in that field. I I just find it so interesting. Oh, in in the acting field, yeah, um, yeah. So I loved it in high school and elementary school, and so I I uh, decided that hey, this would be a good thing to do a career in, and <laughs> um, went to UVic for my bachelor of fine arts, and after graduating from there, was in Victoria for a few more years. Um, working with a bunch of theater companies there, and then decided to make my big move to Vancouver to see what the big pond was like. Yeah, I did some I did some theater. I did Bard on the Beach for a year. I did Shemina's Theater. I did a school tour through Western Canada. So <laughs> there was all these moments in there. But like you said, Graham, the auditioning part was never my forte, I yeah. have to say. <laughs> it is the worst part of it, for yeah. me anyway. It's yeah. tough. And Antonio, what's what's your experience? I, I know from a from a quick Google search that you made it uh, beyond the audition stage. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've made it beyond the audition stage, and I always make it back to the audition stage. <laughs> <laughs> That's 
Yeah, I, uh, I actually didn't do it in high school, and I got into it just in my last year of high school. I hurt myself. I was a, a an athlete, and I injured myself, and I got stuck into a drama class as a way to pick up credits. And that's when I discovered I loved it. I had one drama teacher who like this is like story out of fame. I had one drama teacher who was like, "You're really good at this, and you should you should consider it." And I was like, "All right, whatever." And she signed a piece of paper for me and sent me off to an audition for theater school, and I got in. So I went to theater school in Toronto at Ryerson, and that's where I loved it. That's where I, I learned to love it and by the time i finished theater school i convinced myself that i also hated it um (laughs) then i left and i I didn't audition and i didn't really know what i wanted out of it and i paid off all my debts and then one day an audition showed up that looked like it was just exactly what i wanted and i went out for it and i swung as hard as i could and i nailed it and i ended up on stage for the whole summer the equivalent of bart on the beach is uh, dream in high park uh with, with canadian stage And I ended up in a rehearsal hall full of people that I knew at the time were going to be like local theater legends in a way. Like they were all creators. They were all innovators. They were all powerhouses. And that one summer shifted things for me because I got a ton of advice. I got a ton of of people kind of like explaining the biz to me, explaining what to do and how it worked. And so I I knew I loved it and I, I stuck with it. Uh, I did a lot of theater in Toronto. I, I started my own theater company, a not-for-profit called Project Humanity. Still runs today, still creates theater without me, probably better without me. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I moved out here because I, I wanted to see what film and TV looked like. I'd never really given it a, a fair shot. I was always kind of like either in between contracts or with an agent who hated me. I got here. I ended up scoring with an agent who just like actually believed, believed me when I sat down and said, I'm here for a week and if I don't book, I'm going home. And we just started going. So I've been pretty lucky that the niche that I found my way into here, shockingly, is Hallmark. Hallmark has been very kind to me. And if you ever need like a nice pick-me-up Christmas show where people fall in love in a small town, I'll probably be the bartender. (laughs) (laughs) So still in the food service, even in the movie, huh? Can't escape. It keeps dragging us back in. (laughs) Well, Antonio, tell us now about what is happening because Say Mercy just uh, just opened very recently. Then, of yeah. course, you're hit as the whole world is with this pandemic. But you and your partners are doing something really interesting there with Staff Meal, which, of course, I have always understood as people, as you know, all of us having worked in the hospitality industry, Staff Meal is that time. But just before service starts, when you try to get as many members of the team as possible to sit down together, Uh break bread together, get into the zone for service. But you guys are doing something different with Staff Meal now. So please tell us about that. Yeah, we kind of took it a step further, I guess. Um, But what you just said is exactly where it started from when we... We saw it coming, right? Like we, we've been following world news. We knew we were going to have to close. We knew everyone was going to have to close. And what we were hoping for was that that leadership would mandate it. Unfortunately, the restaurants kind of had to be the leaders before the government did, which, if I'm being honest, kind of sucks, but it's also great. Uh, it's, it's important that we could look around and say, from a responsibility point of view, we can't stay open in spite of the fact that they're saying, no, no, it's okay that restaurants can stay it's open. okay, don't worry. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. just crazy. And they showed up a week and a half later and said, you guys should close. And we are like, oh, come on. Uh, <laughs> but because we knew that it was going to happen, it, it gave us the time to mourn the restaurants. Like, we had just opened. We had a, a two-month turnaround on a, on a spot that we were really hoping was going to be like, you know, some award-winning top-notch spot for the year. Uh, and instead, <laughs> your, your doors are closed. But it, it did it did mean that we got to mourn the idea of the restaurants very quickly. And then we got to ask ourselves the honest questions of like, what 
what does it mean to be hospitable in a time of crisis? Like, what is that, right? Like, we are not in hospitality because we're in restaurants. We're in restaurants because we're in hospitality for us. But realistically, being in hospitality, you could be any, there, there are so many different types of hospitality workers that it's really the core values that connect us all. And so we looked at each other and the first thing was like, okay, well, we have a lot of staff at these two places that we no longer have jobs for. There's no income, so we can't pay them. Can we feed them? Like everyone's going to be scared. Everyone's going to be short on money, short on this, short on that. Is it possible to feed these people and for how long? And then because we are the way we are, we just kind of like <laughs> sat in the room extrapolating on that idea. And we were like, oh God, like every restaurant's closing. Could we feed all hospitality workers that are from restaurants? Like what would that look like? How much food is that? And then we kind of went further and we were like, wait, everyone's getting laid off. This isn't, <laughs> it's not, it's not just us. It's not reduced to this. Everyone is going to need comfort and hope. And like, we're lucky because we're sitting in a commercial kitchen. We can cook and we have skilled people who have been self-quarantining because the hours we keep are insane. So (laughs) everybody that we had on staff was clean. (laughs) Um, So we essentially like built a team very quickly and we, we put the story together for ourselves, which was simple, which was we want to put together healthy, affordable meals for the city of Vancouver. We call it staff meal because it's a thing as hospitality workers that we felt like we could connect to. And then we could reach out to people who are in a similar situation and say, if you have been laid off and you are not in a position to put food on the table, call us. We're going to have donated food. And it also uh, afforded this, the opportunity to reach out to the people who have taken care of us, both at St. Mercy and at the McKenzie Room, as guests and say, if you are in a position that you are not going to be running out of food, come to us and donate food to somebody else and let us just be the middle people. So um, it's, it's a pretty simple model. And because of where the McKenzie Room is, we're located in Railtown. So we're, we're downtown east side. We're right across from Oppenheimer Park, which has been a pretty uh, intense year to be located there. We're familiar with all the local shelters. We know where they get their food from. So we decided to put a mandatory a mandatory donation. I guess not really a donation. We forced people to pay $2 on every order. Uh, <laughs> so we go to the Vancouver Food Bank because it was the only way that we could guarantee that we could we, we could spread the help further. We knew that we could get donated food and we could hand that out to people who called, but we wanted to make a dollar donation to the Vancouver Food Bank because they have three to one buying power. So for every right. dollar they get, yeah. they can spend it as three. So we thought if we can get two, they can get six. And now we're starting to talk to non-restaurants, uh, small businesses who are saying, well, we'd love to match that in some way. And so we now have, you know, like a uh, uh, beer van collective who is a, a collective uh, of craft brewers that are now dropping off beer door to door. And if you cite Say Mercy, they'll match your donation. So all of a sudden we're looking at the Vancouver Food Bank being able to get $12 of buying power instead of six. So that's yeah, awesome. right. That's, that's so great. What's, it's a little, what's the model? It's a great model. What's the volume of the program so far, Antonio? Like how many meals are you guys turning out in a day? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't entirely know because we're counting, because we're not running as a normal restaurant would. We just, we're counting things differently because the numbers don't matter the way they used to. I can say that on average, we're looking at like 80 to 90 orders a day, but a single order might be one meal, might be somebody buying seven meals for their family. So, so that part ranges. Like we might go through 600 units in a day. We might go through 400 units in a day. What we are seeing is that we're averaging somewhere between like 75 and 95 donations a day in terms of single donated meals, which, which is crazy. That's um, amazing. Over the yeah. weekend. Yeah. Like over the weekend, last weekend, I got a call from somebody who said, I want to buy a hundred, we call them suspended stews. So he said, I want to buy a hundred suspended stews specifically for frontline workers. At the time, I didn't have a way to get it to frontline workers, but I wanted to honor his request. So I called up one of our mm-hmm. partners because we have about six, seven partners in it now. Fable, Dachi, um, Bell Guards with us, Arbor, 
Masayoshi is just about to come on board. Beer Van is, is with us, Pampangas Cuisine. So we just called up one of the partners at Fable and we said, we have this massive donation. We don't know how to use it. Do you have access to Frontline? He said, yes. And we're like, all right, it's yours. Here you go. Yeah. And then yeah, over this weekend, the same thing happened. I got a new call from somebody else saying, love what you're doing. Can we buy 100 stews? So I say we're averaging 75 to 95 a day, but I, I'm probably way undershooting because <laughs> right. you know people come out of the woodworks to help. Well, it's got to make you feel good to see the response of the community around this. It's incredible. And and I, I had mentioned before we got on, like the economy of kindness or the economy of philanthropy. Like one of the things that I know from running a nonprofit in Toronto was that good begets good. So like if you truly believe that you're doing, <laughs> I, have, I, have a, I used to do a lot of spoken word and I had a friend named, I have a friend named Tommy Buick. And he would always say, because he's a poet, he would always say, you do it for the cause, not the applause. And, and I think that's like, he nailed that for me because it's a place that people get wrong. They, they do good because they want people to say, my God, you're doing good. And Tommy was just like, roll in silence. Like nobody cares. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the, the people that you're doing good for receive what you're doing and that's it. It's like, there's nothing right. after that's, that. That's, that's what matters. That's the, ends of the, that's the yeah. end of the transaction. And so I, I feel like in the economy of kindness, that's what happens is you do good because good needs to be done and somebody sees it and they realize that their burden has been taken care of without it being asked. And then they go, oh, and they stop looking in and they look out and they say, well, what can I do for the next person? And, so, and I think that's what we're seeing. We're seeing people pick up the phone because something mm-hmm. in it has touched them and has hopefully given them hope or calmness or something that they required, right? It, like it nourished something. And now they're, they're, they don't have to look inward, you know? And, and like the more time in a crisis people are looking inward, we tend to spiral, like we freak out. Right. But if you, if you kind of look across and you say like, oh, my neighbors need help. Let me go do this thing for them. At the very least, you filled your time with time that you can't freak out. <laughs> exactly. exactly. You know, and you're doing, you're, you're doing something. Something positive. As, yeah, exactly. productive and positive as well. Yeah, yeah so no, it's true. And I mean, looking at the computer screen with the, with the three faces here, another piece of the impact was that Chris noticed it. Chris told me about it. I thought, mm-hmm. wow, this is, really, this is really cool. And here we are having a conversation, which I think yeah. is great. So, Chris, what are you seeing from your perch as hospitality industry veteran now back to the uh, now back to office land and and work as a lawyer? But what are you observing in either in the culinary industry or maybe just in your day to day life about obviously how things have changed, but maybe find a few bright points for us? Yeah, I think yeah. there's some bright points out there uh, for sure. I, like things like what Antonio and, and, and those those guys are doing is. I mean, Antonio, you summed it up beautifully. I think it was just like you really are looking out for community in a way that you don't see on your day-to-day basis. If there isn't a, a public emergency out there, we wouldn't yeah. see this kind of reach out the way at that's all. going on right now. Well, you'd be too busy working very hard at this restaurant you're trying to build. Exactly. So, yeah. And so I, I see that. I see what I'm really impressed with from, like, I had a friend who just opened a restaurant in Victoria, too. It, it, what I'm really impressed with is the the inventiveness of trying to make your business go yeah. and trying to just weather this storm as it's coming through. And I think that's really amazing. Yeah. And kudos to you. And also nice to see that, that they're selling wine and beer out of, out of every restaurant nowadays. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, uh, my brother and I went to the American on the weekend and got some yeah. takeaway from there and you know, a mason jar full of beer later, we're walking out the door. Yeah, so. you're thrilled. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm scared and sad to see what's going to happen when the government says, well, you can't do that anymore. And everyone's like, oh, wait, what? Yeah. 
Why? Come on. Yeah. Let's, oh, well. Yeah. yeah. We're this close to being able to drink in a park. Come yeah. on. Come on. <laughs> Keep this going for us. Yeah. Great. Well, listen, guys, any other tips or resources that you would point people to? So a few that I've noticed recently, there's breakingbreadnow.com. There's uh, eatlater.ca. Just about some ideas on on how to support the restaurant business. I've seen more recently one table, hashtag one table. Yeah. So one table and, and savehospitality.ca are kind yeah. of working, maybe not quite in tandem, but they support each other. Mm-hmm. I, I would actually say like there's sort of two thrusts. Breaking Bread is a hub. So it's a place that people can go to to see what takeout is available. And and I think it's important that everyone can be under one umbrella. Something like Save Hospitality and One Table are having, in my opinion, a, a very big conversation. They're having a, a conversation about longevity, not just about where can we get food today, but about putting pressure both politically and, and socially to some extent on how we actually look at the restaurant industry as like an integral part of, uh, of any city. I think places like those are places that people should at least pop on and read at the very least, sure. whether they sure. choose to support it or not is, is secondary, but get, get to know them. Right. Right. And the, and the one table and was it save, save hospitality.ca. Hospitality. Those are more based on my quick read, at least politically motivated. Like they're, they're looking to, to motivate some action from the government. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're just, they're, they're saying long-term don't let an industry die based on inaction, right? That, that the, the, the small work of, of saying like, here's where you can get takeout or here's where you can get wine and beer is not going to be enough to hold up the long-term. entire industry long-term. That's all they're, that's right. all they're getting at. And, and it's certainly not negating the here's where you should go get takeout, get takeout. Sure. You know? And then when people right. like, people ask me all the time, I'm like, you know, s- support small businesses, however you can, whatever that means to you. But more importantly, ask them and listen, you know, like most mm-hmm. of the places are telling you how they would like you to engage. And, and I would say it behooves us to hear what they're saying and engage with them in that way, whether they're selling merchandise or they're selling backpack steaks, or they're, they're running like, uh, like a philanthropic model, or they're saying like, this is our takeout. It's, it's a three course 55, like whatever you can sustain, help them sustain mm-hmm. it. And then of course, you know, like buy gift cards, which, which for some people is great. And for some people doesn't work, but that's a, that's a, a small part of the model that is helpful. Uh, just in terms of cash flow for most places, to be honest. Sure. Yeah. In the minute to minute. And I've noticed some yeah. restaurants are, are actually passing 100% of proceeds of gift cards on to employees now. Yeah, so exactly. Yeah. It's nice to see all different kinds and of And it depends on like what the place can sustain. Sure. Yeah. No, absolutely. Chris, any other thoughts on things that you're seeing that are encouraging or uh, any uh, any order in finds in particular that yeah. you've been happy with that we should know about? <laughs> I was pretty happy with my Dachi order in. I oh, wasn't yeah. I went on to your website, Antonio, and I was going to order from you, but you're also out. So yeah, I was yeah. like, oh, let's go to Dachi instead. And, <laughs> and uh, I tried uh, Ursa Majors wines for the first time from them. It I was, was just going to say, wines, yeah. And if, yeah, you, was, if you're into it, when you go on Dachi's website, get sake. Yeah. She has oh, sake too? Yeah. probably the best sake collection like going. Awesome. And she, I am into she's it. She's like a super sake thumb. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. Um, you'd be remiss if you didn't talk about uh, Burdock and Company's website too. They're doing pretty interesting things there too. Yeah. With yeah, some yeah. Like, takeaway vegetable weekly bags, I think, or something like that. So, yeah, that's yeah. right. They're doing the CSA through Harvest, through their other restaurant, Harvest Community Foods. And then their Burdock is doing some pickup, like fully prepped stuff as well, which is yeah. great to see. Yeah. Autostrada did a version of that, but I think they just did it for hospitality industry oh is that right oh, i didn't yeah. know that they've got yeah. a great website too got, a website. got some good stuff too yeah. Yeah. that's also a place that like stop and get food 
It's yeah. really good. Yeah, it's really good. There are a number of things <laughs> that, are, that are kind of doing it right. You know what? When you say, are there things that you're seeing that are really exciting? One of the things that uh, I love is watching breweries and distilleries not only figure out beer delivery, but some of them are moving into hand sanitizer. So uh, yeah. Parallel 49, I think just yeah. yesterday rolled out their first batch uh, and, and, and their first batch, I think, went to all frontline workers, but the next batch is going to be available to the public. And even small available places, like um, there's like little stores, uh, Sunday Small Goods up on Main Street just made a batch of their own hand sanitizer. And so they have that on their website now, too. So a lot of places yeah. are kind of figuring out how to, how, how to create things that people need at this time mm-hmm. while still being a business yeah right that's great yeah and hopefully still staying in business yeah that's the hope yeah absolutely i saw uh there's a a number of distilleries i live on the sunshine coast usually uh we're in the city now but um uh, one foot crow was one that i got to know recently and saw them at the gibson's public market a month or two ago and just noticed on instagram same thing first run of little bottles of uh, hand sanitizer amazing yeah Yeah. it's such a smart pivot and again like that's the word right like everyone's pivoting everyone's adapting it's like, what, right. what do you have access to and what can you do that people need right now? How do you take care of them while still responsibly running a business? It's, Absolutely. It's, it's exciting. It's, I think you're right. It's exciting to see the creativity. Mm-hmm. It's nice to see. Yeah, it's nice to see these bright points in yeah, an otherwise challenging landscape. Very much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, listen, guys, I promise to keep this brief. It's been so interesting that I didn't keep it really brief, but <laughs> I, I, I super appreciate you both joining me for being on Chef Demoni and, and for sharing your thoughts. Thanks for being here, guys. Nice to actually see both of you. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> Thanks to you both for a great talk and for reminding me why the hospitality industry is so great. One of the big reasons is that the people in it are hospitable. They actually care for each other. It was great to hear about what Say Mercy is doing with the staff meal program. And Chris, I really appreciated your thoughts on some bright spots in this chaos and how the restaurant industry is meeting this massive challenge really creatively. My next guest is Sonia Strobel, one of the founders of Skipper Auto. As you'll hear, Skipper Auto is a business, but it's also, or he's also, a real person. Sonia's father-in-law, in fact. But Skipper Auto, the business, is a CSF, a community-supported fishery. Now, when Sonia joined this fishing family, she looked around at the industry and she saw definite room for improvement. You'll hear some amazing numbers from Sonia today about just how much of Canada's seafood catch is exported and about just how much of the seafood we consume here in Canada is, in fact, imported. So Sonia thought there could be a better way to pay fishing families to get them a living wage and to give consumers here in BC and elsewhere in Canada, in fact, access to local seafood production. And in building that model, Sonia and Skipper Auto actually created a business that seems almost custom-made for operating efficiently and safely through this COVID-19 crisis. But that's a story best told by Sonia, so join me now. Here is my interview with Sonia Strobel of Skipper Auto. Sonia Strobel, thank you for taking the time to meet up uh, virtually on a Sunday morning. Thanks very much for being on Chefdemony. Well, thanks so much for having me. My pleasure, absolutely. Well, let's start with the business that I know you are a part of. But the business is a person, and the person is a business. So, can you tell us who right. who Skipper Auto is, and and also what Skipper Auto is? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Well, Skipper Otto is actually a real person, not like a Captain Highliner or some figurehead. Skipper Otto is my father-in-law, and he started fishing back in the 1960s on the BC coast. And my husband, Sean, grew up fishing with his dad. And, um, you know, back in those days, fishing was, uh, you know, a lot more like that. They were small family fishing operations all up and down the coast and, and food was more local. So, you know, anybody who lived on the coast could go down to the docks and, and, and get fish from a fishing community. So that's who Skipper Auto is. Skipper Auto, the business, is a community-supported fishery. And so when I married into this fishing family almost 20 years ago, I was kind of horrified to see the way that fishing really works. You know, individuals, families who fish, uh, take on all these enormous upfront costs at the start of the fishing season, incredible risks, just, I mean, risks to their health, it's dangerous work, and risks in terms of knowing what their market's going to be. Sure. And then they they get out there and they they go fishing and then they hope they find a fair market for their catch. And this seemed incredibly broken to me. You know, and at the same time, I knew people who wanted local fish and who couldn't get it. You know, they'd go into the grocery store and the fish was, you know, we live in Vancouver. And so you'd go into the grocery store in Vancouver and you would assume you can get fish. That Fresh local BC fish. Yeah. Right. But the truth is actually about 80% of what you can buy in grocery stores and restaurants in Canada is imported from foreign fisheries. And at the same time, we export about 90% of our seafood to foreign markets. And so there was this disconnect on the end of, of, of seafood lovers, too. They couldn't get local fish, and the fishing families couldn't get fair prices. So, um, you know, I'd been a member of community-supported agriculture programs for many years, so getting my vegetables directly from my local farmers. And I had this, in 2008, had this aha moment that maybe you could do the same thing with fishing. Maybe you could foster this direct relationship with seafood-loving home cooks, and they would pre-purchase their seafood from our fishing families before we went fishing. So that's how it all got started. Almost 12 years ago now, um, we started this very different model of uh, a subscription seafood model where you can get your fish directly from your fishing families. Terrific. Well, I've, I've had a quick look through your website, and I think I have a sense of how it works. And CSA certainly is something I'm familiar with. And so the model I take it is people pay up front according to some estimate of how much uh, mm-hmm. seafood they're going to consume during the course of the year. And then mm-hmm. and then the the fishing families go out, they do their thing, they bring the catch back. And then h- how is it determined? How do I know what I'm going to get or do I know what I'm going to get? Yeah, that's a really good question. People often think, oh, I don't know, if I join this thing, am I going to get a mystery box of fish every week and I'm not going to know how to cook this and it's going to spoil in my fridge? Because, oh, yeah, those are some of the complaints with the CSA model is that you get random things and and it it goes bad. So we're really fortunate on the BC coast that we have a lot of amazing seafood and a lot of amazing seafood that freezes incredibly well. You know, that it comes out indetectable from from what, you know, you think of as fresh, so flash frozen, beautiful seafood. So what that allows us to do is that our members, like you said, they decide how much seafood they're going to eat in a year. And that can be a tricky thing to figure out. So we have a share size calculator that helps members figure out how many people are in your household, how often do you eat seafood. And then it gives you a number. So let's imagine that for your family, it said you should buy a $500 share. So at the start of the fishing season, and that's kind of, you know, now up until the end of uh, so this is now April. So you could join until the end of May is kind of when our sign-up season ends. So you'd pay down your $500. And then throughout the fishing season, you can log into our online store. And the online store works just like any other online store, except it's only for members. And your credit is already uploaded there. And then you can say, oh, look, they have halibut. They have tuna. And I think I'll take a piece of that. When you order exactly what you want, the dollar comes off of your pre-purchased credit. 
Okay, I've got it. And then I just go, where do I go to actually physically pick it up? So we have about 45 pickup locations across Canada from Victoria to Ottawa. And these are neighborhood pickup locations. If you live in Metro Vancouver, we're based at the False Creek Fisherman's Wharf, which is right down near Granville Island. So you can come right to our home base there and we have pickups there. But we also have community partners and locations all across the, the country where you can pick up your seafood. Okay. Okay. Terrific. Can you tell, and this may be a, a, a bigger political economic question, which is fine, but it just surprises me the numbers that you give at 80% of Canadian food exported and, and 90% or sorry, 80% imported and, and 90% of our, our production exported. Why, why is that? Is it simply global pricing? We're, we as Canadian consumers are demanding cheaper stuff and we as Canadian producers can get a better price outside of Canada? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's, it's one for the economists and a sort of macroeconomics really yeah. big question is to talk about what has happened in terms of the globalization of our economies, but, you know, more specifically, the globalization of our food system. So seafood is a commodity, just like lumber or other things like that, where um, ownership is often multinational or international. Those products uh, are then, you know, sort of put through a long supply chain in whatever way can return the largest profits for the shareholders. And that's really what the system is designed for. And so, you know, in Canada, for example, we have almost no local seafood processing capacity left. Really, the bulk of seafood processing happens in Asia. So even the little bit of seafood that we sell in Canada is often shipped to Asia to be processed and then shipped back to Canada to wow. be sold. Wow. I, Which is crazy when you think about absolutely. it, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's really interesting. And makes me wonder about the next time I pick up a piece of something fresh and local. Yeah. Right. Right. And, you know, we really, as consumers, we don't have a way of knowing, you know, do we? Because uh, in Canada, our labeling laws dictate that we only have to state the country of the most recent major transformation. So seafood that was caught in Canada and processed in China will say product of China, even though it was possibly caught here. Or it may have been processed, its initial process in China, and then some secondary processing in Canada. So now it will say product of Canada. So really, as consumers, we're in the dark anyway. Right. Sonia, can you tell us about the impact that you felt of what we're all living through right now, which is the the COVID-19 pandemic, and and maybe comment on how your model has been impacted or, or maybe has helped to withstand some of the pressures that everybody's feeling now? Mm-hmm. You know, the first thing I think I think about in this COVID-19 crisis is how it has made us all think about our food and where it's coming from. And so, you know, people going into grocery stores and seeing bare shelves, people are beginning to say, well, wait a second, why isn't there any, you know, flour on the shelf in the grocery store? Where does it come from? Um, is it, is it going to come back? Is there a shortage in the world? And so people are starting to ask these, these really important questions which I think is good. And I think that's one of the silver linings of this crisis that we're in is it's causing people to ask these questions. Wonder, you should wonder about where your food comes from. How secure is our food system? Uh, are we in danger of, of not having food or where is it coming from? These are important questions. So that's kind of interesting. Um, you know, we also see for fishing families, we're seeing huge impacts. So, you know, like I say, we export, if we export 90% of our seafood to global markets at a time like this, when those global markets are disappearing, we're seeing the disappearance of, of markets for our catch. Right. So, you know, a good example of that is the um, local crab fishery, which, uh, you know, takes place usually January, February, March is kind of the biggest season for our local crab fishing families, because that's, it's all exported to Asia. 
And during the uh, Lunar New Year festival time is the largest market for our local crab, the highest prices paid. And a lot of fishing families will make the bulk of their year's income just in the month of sort of February fishing for crab for that export. And we saw, of course, COVID-19 hit the, the Asian markets really hard right at the banquet season and the markets dried up. And so boats here on the coast have been tied up for months. Uh, they're not even going out fishing because the price has dropped so low and there are no local markets. So, you know, there's a lot of impacts for fishing families. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I, I guess another silver lining, if we can call it that, to the community-supported model and the fact that you you have sort of, a, I guess I would call it a modified retail system in that it's closed for members and then you've got your delivery points already set. Like, has Skipper Auto's routine business been impacted or are you able to still carry things out during this during this crisis? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. We're, we're really lucky that, you know, we designed a model to help even out some of the uncertainty in what's a really uncertain fishing business. As it turns out, we built something that's very resilient also to things like a global pandemic. So, um, you know, we already have a pickup system that allows for almost zero contact between people. So it really allows people to pick up their seafood without coming into contact with one another. So that's great. You know, we also have this model where people prepay. And so we know as fishing families that we can go fishing and that we have a fair market. So it gives us that confidence. And unlike fishing families who are fishing crab for the export market, uh, they don't they, they don't have the confidence to go out and spend all that money to go fishing because they don't know if they have a market where our fishing families know that they have that market. And we have the cash up front. So we're really able to help fishing families who, uh, you know, need to do some boat repairs or need some new piece of equipment to be able to fish. We can give them that money up front. They can be paid before they even go out. So there's a, there's a lot of ways that the model is helping the fishing industry to continue. Um, our members also get that they eat with the ecosystem. So in other words, they don't demand, I want to have, you know, 20 pounds of sockeye salmon on this date or something like that. They know that we're going to wait and see what the ecosystem provides in abundance. And that's what we're going to pick and choose from. And so, you know, that always, the BC coast is abundant seafood. And so that always means a wonderful selection of seafood. But in a year, for example, like this, the spot prawn season has been postponed because the, of the foreign markets and COVID-19 and, and the uncertainty there. And so our members know that they might get their spot prawns a little later or, you know, whatever may happen with that, there'll be other shrimp and prawns and other things that will be available to them. Uh, you know, unlike if I was uh, in the traditional supply chain and I had, for example, a, a restaurant client who wanted X number of pounds of spot prawns delivered on certain dates and I lose that contract, I'm really up the creek. So, you know, our model really helps level out some of that uncertainty. Right. And what I like about it is like a, because it is community supported, just like a CSA, everybody's kind of in it together, right? And do you find that you you attract like-minded people, people who are not just A-OK that they may not get 20 pounds of sockeye, but kind of excited to see what's going to come up in a given year? Absolutely. Yeah, we, we love our members. Our members really always, whenever I have interactions with our members, it gives me faith in humanity, right? Like there are such good people in the world and people who really want to know that they're supporting, you know, hardworking Canadians who are going out fishing and that they understand that if we're harvesting one of the last great wild protein sources in the world from the sea, that there are all kinds of things we have to take into consideration in terms of conservation, in terms of what's available, in terms of storms and, you know, these kinds of 
of things. And so they understand that. And our members are really, like you say, they're very excited to see what comes in this week. And, and, they, and they have access to all kinds of things you can't get in the grocery store. Like, for example, the lingcod cheeks. So a lot of people have never even heard of lingcod. It's a wonderful local fish, white fish. And they have these delicious cheeks that are just incredible. But you can't get that in the grocery store. But our members can. But your so. members can. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Do you see other opportunities, Sonia, beyond CSF, community-supported fisheries, community-supported agriculture? What else, if anything, are you seeing in, in this movement, if I can call it that? Or what else can we as consumers be doing to contribute to better local food security? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think there's huge power on the part of the consumers to, uh, you know, bolster our local food systems and to help us grow those local food systems. So for the average consumer, the, the first and most important thing is to just begin to ask the question of where your food is coming from and wherever possible to be shortening the supply chain. And so I, I emphasize the supply chain. It's not so much about the geography. So, you know, if you live in Winnipeg, you do have some local fish, but you don't have an enormous amount of local seafood. Does that mean you shouldn't be eating seafood? I would argue not. I would argue that seafood that comes, uh, that changes hands the fewest number of times before it, and has the, before it gets to you, yeah, and it has the lowest uh, carbon footprint possible, uh, that's an incredibly good food source for you. So I think people should be asking those questions. Where, where, how many times is the food changing hands before it gets to me? So how can I reduce that supply chain? And sometimes that means buying directly from the producer. Sometimes it means um, you know going to local shops who specialize in bringing in uh, local food, uh, small businesses. I think that those are some really important ways. And then wherever possible, letting our governments know that we value these shortened supply chains and our governments do have some incredible opportunities now to increase our local capacity for food. And so in terms of supporting local processing initiatives and, uh, you know, other initiatives that would support small scale food production, I think so often our policies are geared around, you know, really large corporate export oriented food production. And we're seeing the, the cracks in that system now. And so now is the time to change that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's going to be really interesting to see in the coming weeks and months what the reaction is, both on a policy level from government and then individual consumers. And I think you're right. This is showing cracks and hopefully a sufficient number of people will ask the questions that, you, that you're talking about and see if we can make some change because it's it really does. It, it seems to me that there needs to we need to get to a tipping point because right now there are some I don't know what we would call them, early adopters or thought leaders who are willing to buy the local and fresh and organic and and go to the restaurants who consume those products as well. But it can often be hard because those products can be expensive, right? And I think globalization has conditioned us to far too great a degree to value cheapness in food. Yes. And, and yes, so, absolutely. Yeah. And, it, and really the system is structured to reward large-scale food production and to reward export orientation. And, uh, you know, so for example, our halibut fisherman, Doug, he fishes on a boat that's about uh, 35 feet long. There's him and usually one of his kids helping. Um, He goes out for maybe two to three days. He's out fishing right now, two to three days at a time. He brings in this beautiful fresh catch. Um, That in stark contrast to most of the export oriented fleet out there. So these are vessels that are essentially factories, you know, you can have dozens of people working on a boat here in our waters, uh, you know, catching large volumes of fish, they're out for two weeks at a time. And then the fish is getting older as it's sitting there on the boat for, for this export market. 
the costs for Doug to go out fishing. So in terms of his validation, that means having a live offloader or a validator on his boat or to have a camera, a $10,000 camera mounted on his boat to um, record his fishing operations when his gear is running. Those costs are the same, whether it's just him or whether it's this large operation. And so we really punish the small scale and the local through our policies. And I think that local fish doesn't have to be more expensive. You know, another version of that is really in the ownership of of licenses and quotas. So in British Columbia, we allow licenses and quotas to be owned by people who have nothing to do with the fishery. In fact, who may have never set foot on a boat or may not even ever have set foot in Canada. And so in the case of Halibut, you know, 75% of the landed, on average, 75% of the landed value of the catch of Halibut goes to the quota owner. Uh, And so when you think about the cost of halibut in the stores, it's not so expensive because, you know, that's how much it costs to get it to you. It's that expensive because someone's making that much money, that much much profit over doing for doing nothing, for just owning the license. Structurally, that's where the cost comes in. Interesting. And and can you tell us a, a little bit more? I think I understand this concept now, but it was new to me until you and I spoke a couple of days ago about a validator. This sounds fascinating to me. So this is actually a, a, a government employee who is... Well, there's some contractors now, okay. yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. But mm-hmm. somebody responsible for reporting to the government about just what the catch is on a boat. Is that mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. then boat, yeah, that's right. Okay. And then if a boat is a little smaller then they are required to set up a video system. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, people don't often realize how heavily regulated our fisheries are. People hear things about overfishing and they worry that, you know, we're out there stripping the ocean of of seafood at some kind of unmonitored way. And really in in British Columbia, in our inshore waters, this is not the case at all. Fishing is very, very heavily regulated and the um, fishing opportunities that are available are very conservative. So they're based on data around how much fish is available. And in the absence of data, fishing opportunities are not available. We're not allowed to fish. And so, yeah, one of the ways that the Department of Fisheries and Oceans monitors and regulates the catch is through these validation and monitoring systems. And so in some cases, you actually do have a live person on your boat who is watching and recording. Um, and in other cases, you you do have these cameras mounted to your boat and they're affixed to the gear. So they're running whenever you're fishing. So it's very, very heavily regulated in terms of quotas as well. If you're fishing halibut and you might... Uh, catch uh, rockfish bycatch you have to have a quota for your halibut but you also have to have a quota for the bycatch bycatch. and if you hit your bycatch quota for example a certain species of rockfish once you catch the maximum you're allowed you can't fish your halibut quota and so the fisherman is incentivized to fish where you're not going to catch those rockfish because they have a much lower market value. Right. Got and it. if you plant fish your halibut, you're going to lose money. So the system is really set up to protect, you know, for conservation first. Uh, and it's heavily, heavily monitored. Right. Okay. Just a couple more questions, Sonia. One, mm-hmm. one is sort of a technical question about the flash freezing. And this is something I remember reading about years and years ago. But how does that work? Because I know it's very different. The effect on the meat, on the product, is much different from me putting it in my home freezer, right? And is that just because it's that much colder? How does it work? Yeah, that's a great question. I think so many people still have this idea that frozen seafood is lower quality than than so-called fresh seafood, which really isn't the case. If you think about what fresh means, fresh just means how far along from being taken out of the water to being decayed to the point of not being able to eat how far in that process is it? That's really what fresh means. So when we freeze fish, we 
stop it in the decay process, however quickly we can get it into a frozen state. So when you flash freeze seafood or any product, you bring its temperature from whatever it may have been, four degrees Celsius down to minus 20 or so very, very quickly, just a matter of minutes. And when you bring the temperature down that quickly, what happens is that uh, unlike when you, like you say, for example, if I just toss it in my home freezer here, it might take it, you know, 12 or 24 hours to get into a frozen state. And that slow, in that slow freezing process, the water molecules expand slowly. And as they do, they cause micro tears in the flesh of the fish. And so that's what really causes the fish to get this sort of softer texture that people often associate with frozen fish. Whereas when you flash freeze, you don't have any micro tearing. And so when we've done side-by-side blind taste tests, we find that um, people can't tell the difference between a flash frozen piece of fish. And in fact, what people often don't realize is that all of the sushi that you can eat in Canada has to have been frozen. Right. Right. Okay. And that's that's purely a safety issue. They take it down to whatever temperature for whatever length of time to make sure the the beasties are no longer there. Yeah, no parasites or anything like exactly, exactly. And so really we can, you know, we have incredible freezing technology now that can really get that down to an amazing quality product that's frozen. And when you have that in your freezer, you can pull this out and you, you know, can put it in the fridge or throw it in a sink of water and it'll thaw very quickly while you're prepping the rest of your meal. And so in this, especially in this COVID-19 time where people are cooking more at home, you know, and they're thinking about like, oh, gee, I don't know what to cook. Having a freezer full of portioned fillets of fish that you can just pull one out. It's, it's, it's great. It makes cooking at home so much easier. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, especially these days. Okay, so what right now, we're sitting at the beginning of April, what is delicious right now coming out of the sea? Yeah, that's a good question. We It is the halibut season. So as I say, Doug, who's our halibut fisherman, is out there as we speak. He'll be coming in tomorrow or Tuesday with his his fresh halibut. So that's really the start of the fishing season. And uh, in, in, in any year is this time of year is halibut. Um, we're soon, we would be heading into um, the spot prawn fishery that usually starts in May. As I said, it's going to be delayed a little bit this year. So we're heading into uh, the spot prawn season. Oh, it's also still shrimp season. So we have a lot of beautiful shrimp. People often don't think of this you know most of our shrimp is coming from thailand and southeast asia but we have clean beautiful shrimp in our water in bc years with lots of shrimp and then soon june will come and it will be salmon season and and everything flows from there all the way through to october when the fishing season kind of wraps up for the year right love it well i love that we're heading into this season of bounty Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. And really, we don't, you know, I think so. We, we're living in a time of such fear right now. People are fearful of what what is it going to look like? What are we going to be eating? And I think people should be really excited and celebrating. We're heading into this abundant, bountiful fishing season. And if they join, you know, join Skipper Auto, join another community supported fishery, if you're elsewhere in the world, um, you know, get to know your fishermen and just know that you're going to have an amazing supply of seafood through the whole year. Uh, you don't know exactly what it's going to be, but you're going to be able to choose from a, a huge selection. Love it. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, Sonia, where is the best place for people to find to find you, to find Skipperado, and to, to learn more about your program? Yeah, the best place is for them to go to www.skipperauto.ca. They can check us out there, and they can check us out on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever your, your preference for social media is. We're there telling stories of our fishing families, so uh, you can check us out there. You can become a member on our website. Um, we've actually decided to extend our early bird sign-up rate to the end of April, just because we know that this is a time when, especially with COVID-19, a lot of people are struggling uh, additional financial hardships, so we wanted to bring down our rates, so if you join by the end 
of April, you can get a, a great deal. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Sonia, for taking the time and good luck with this upcoming season. Thank you so much. It was great chatting with you. Thanks, Sonia, for joining me and for giving us all insight into a really interesting model for food production and food distribution. I'm very glad that Skipper Auto is here and doing what you do, especially these days. Thank you for joining me as well. I'm really glad that you've chosen to spend another Friday or whatever day it is that you've happened to download the show. I'm really glad you've chosen to spend an hour with me here on Cheftimony. And I hope you found these talks about people and businesses doing things a little differently. I hope you found that to be a hopeful discussion during these really strange times. If you're enjoying Cheftimony, I would love it if you would give the show a star rating. You can do that on Apple Podcasts or many of the other podcast directories. And if you've got a few more minutes and are so inclined, please leave a written review for the show. Doing either or both of those things really does help other people to find Cheftimony. And if you'd like to help in that initiative directly, please tell any food-loving friends that you have about the show if you think they might enjoy it as well. As always, I love to hear from you. Hearing from listeners is... One of the ways that I find the great guests for the show, come up with some topic ideas and suggestions, I would love to hear from you. So please do get in touch. You can do that on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. And of course, you can send me an email to graham at cheftimony.com. Today, for example, it was Marnie, a mutual friend of Sonia's and mine, who brought us together and really allowed that interview to happen. So Marnie, thanks for that. And please, be like Marnie. Get in touch and give me your ideas for guests or show suggestions. I would really appreciate that. Okay, that is all for today. As always, please stay safe. Please follow the safety guidelines. Be kind to each other and take good care. I'm Graham McLennan, and I'll see you next Friday, right here on Chef Demonio.